Today's reading is Exodus 4, 1 through 17. It can be found starting on page 55 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe those two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak, and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please, send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak, and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth, and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand, so you can perform the signs with it. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me. God of grace. As we come into this room that light is um, filtering through the windows, um, we may feel like it's an answer to darkness that we've been experiencing. Or we may be feeling like it's reflective of, of joy that we've been experiencing. We come with different things on our minds and on our hearts, very different places with respect to our beliefs about you. Um, in our experience of you. And so in this time, um, we ask for you to meet us and for you to bring about a sort of humility as we approach listening for your voice. The truth is we're all in the same boat and each of us needs your grace at every second because we're more of a mess 
than we want other people to know. And in this book that we read from um, each week here, um, keeps giving us examples and stories that you don't leave us in our mess, that you move towards us eagerly, lovingly, tenderly, meeting us in all the different ways that each of us needs you to meet us. Most of all, treating us as your children, brought into a family we, of, of undeserved, bountiful love and validation and affirmation. We're more loved than we ever imagined. Please uh, teach us and speak to us in such a way that, that this comes to the forefront of our minds each day, walking out of this place today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This woman writes into a joke website, kind of church jokes. It's church joke day, okay, sorry. She says, I was uh, at the beach with my children for, uh, I was at the beach with my children when my four-year-old son ran up to me, grabbed my hand, and led me to the shore where a seagull lay dead in the sand. Mommy, what happened to him? He asked. He died and went to heaven, I replied. My son thought a moment and then said, God threw him back down? I believe that that's true because I have kids and I know not only how practical they are, but also how obsessed they are with um, dead animal carcasses. So I just, that's, that's actually a theme that I've noticed. I have boys, but I think that's a theme. Bill Keane, the creator of uh, the Family Circus cartoon strip, he tells of a time when he was penciling one of his cartoons. He says, my son Jeffy said, Daddy, how do you know what to draw? I said, God tells me. Jeffy said, and why do you keep erasing parts of it? Uh, and then if, you, you know, if this is more your style, some light bulb jokes. How many uh, charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? One, to change the light bulb, and nine, to pray against the spirit of darkness. I like that, a spirit of darkness part. Um, how many Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? None. They always use candles. Um, and then... How many uh, United Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? This, this statement was issued, we, choo we choose not to make a statement either in favor or against the need for a light bulb. However, if your own journey, in your own journey you have found that a light bulb works for you, that is fine. You're invited to write a poem or compose a modern dance about your personal relationship with your light bulb or light source or non-dark resource. I like that part and present it next month at our annual Light Bulb Sunday service in which we will explore a number of light bulb traditions, including incandescent, fluorescent, three-way, long life, and tinted, all of which are equally valid paths to luminescence. I should memorize that joke. Just tongue twister. I actually, I, just a, I, I have no experience with United Methodist Church, so I can, I can just say that joke. It, it sounds funny to me. Sorry if it hits close to home for some of you or if it, it puts you in a corner. Um, but I'm going to put our, myself in the corner, my own tradition. How many Calvinists does it take to change a light bulb? None. God has predestined when the light will be on. Calvinists, Calvinists do not change bul light bulbs. They simply read the instructions and pray that the light bulb will be one that has been chosen to be changed. I like that. And that transitions nicely <laughs> to my message. Um, because I wanted to start by talking about doctrine. And I don't know what comes to mind when you think about doctrine. But doctrine can actually be a pretty simple thing. And in our story today, we learn that doctrine matters. And it matters first and foremost. Often we think of doctrine as some of the things that are more teased out, kind of footnote issues that this group might agree with, this, this group might disagree with. 
Um, today we're talking about some central doctrines, but the, the interesting thing about it, and I want you to get this on the front end, is that asking a couple simple questions about belief is absolutely critical to entering in to God's mission, to an outward-faced look at the world around you and a sense of what is God doing and how am I involved. To do that, to get there, um, what, what this passage actually shows us is that some crucial questions, you might not think of it as doctrine, but they really are. Who specifically is God and what truly are his actions? Those are the two questions we're going to look at. Who specifically is God and what truly are his actions? Questions that need to be asked um, if you want to be involved in God's mission in this world. And in the way they come to us in this story, I don't know if you caught it, if you spend a little time with this story, you start to see that it's about belief and it's about signs and how signs are going to help the people of Israel have a certain belief. But what is the belief in? Well, first of all, it's in a specific God. I want to um, actually jump way ahead and start by just referencing something else. The Apostle Paul, when he went to uh, on his missionary journeys, he was starting churches in different cities in the book of Acts, you can find it in chapter 17, he comes to Athens. And in, in Athens, he's just kind of marveling at the um, aggressive, expansive view that people have to include all the different kinds of beliefs in the divine. And so he uses this as his springboard to stand and to present something new. Um, and the people, it's clear that it's like, we don't really know this new teaching that you're talking about. And so he stands up and he says, and he references one of their own altars that has an inscription that says, to an unknown God. And then he said, basically says, I'm going to, I'm going to, what you have made unspecific, I am going to bring specificity. And that's what this city really needs. It's got all these hundreds of, of gods and beliefs. That's really exactly what is also happening in this passage. When you see in verse five, the way, um, the way it goes is, is the first sign comes and then God says, this is so that they may believe that the Lord the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. It's specific. This is the specific God. And in fact, as you look at the book of Exodus, there's a concentration at the beginning. Before any of the big wonders and the freedom from slavery, the freedom out of oppression of the people of Egypt into the promised land, all of that exciting stuff, all of the special effects frogs flying out of the sky. Did you know we have that coming in the series? All of that stuff, before any of it happens, what does he want them to know? Who he is, specifically this Old Testament handle, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It happens several times, concentrated here at the beginning before we really get into the action of what God's going to do. And that's important. Um, now, th this, of course, is terribly unpopular today because we tend to back away from people who say, this is exactly who God is. This is specifically who God is. And this is what, specifically what a life connected to that God means for you. I mean, we just start to, you know, back away. And we say, well, okay, you know, it's a lot more comfortable to operate in the realm of saying, now that's what you, that's what you call God. I'm going to go ahead and call the divine something else. In fact, we'd be all better off if we just got even more removed and unspecific, maybe taught, used words like the universe. And so you're backing away, and, you're and you know what it really feels, and I don't want to downplay it too much because I think there's some noble sentiment 
but it, it really feels like you're being generous and expansive. But what you don't see is that you're actually uh, limiting yourself and putting yourself in a very limited position with respect to uh, a view of the world. Because you can't begin to build very many specific things on your worldview and on your outlook and on your sense of what is God doing in this world if you don't have any specific starting point. But as soon as you put, the, put a name on this God, connect it to real people and real events, a name, you get specific, then you begin immediately begin to say, well, that means this, and that means this, and that means this. And you begin building. It becomes expansive, actually, rather than constrictive. And so, but if you stay in a sort of unspecific place, um, what ends up happening really is that your outlook on the world usually becomes kind of lukewarm at best because there's no specific fire underneath um, your beliefs. In a sense, you might have warm fuzzies abounding all over the place for everyone, but you're never on fire for something specific. In the God of the Bible, it seems almost ingenious how this begins to be laid out because the very first thing that happens um, in Genesis is that God identifies himself over against all the other gods. In Genesis, basically you have that same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the very beginning of the first chapter, basically listing every other part of this world that people were making idols to and people were putting their hope in and giving different na divine names to, lays them all out and says, with my words, I created them all. I'm the one that made them all. It's a di critical distinction to make in order to move with that God in mission in this world. It orients you. And then here in Exodus, it's kind of the same thing. Before anything happens, there's hundreds of gods that Pharaoh is aware of. There's hundreds of gods that he's aware of. When Moses comes to him in the next chapter, he says, eh, I don't know your God. I don't, I don't know that one. <laughs> And, and Pharaoh, he's no slouch. He's actually a clever dude because he knows if I don't know the name of your God, I don't have to listen to him, you know? If you remain unspecific in your pursuit of God, if you remain unspecific and never willing to pin down your God, then that God, guess what, never gets specific with you. You know, that's a trick I think a lot of us use. That a lot of arguments against getting specific with God, what's underneath them really is you don't want God to deal with you specifically. And in a sense, really, it's no God at all when it starts to, to be clear that, that your filter is what filters out what is allowed in your view of the divine and what is not. It becomes just more of yourself. If, if you have a very unspecific view of God, um, you can expect to have actually a more selfish, I mean, you can have a radically selfish outlook on life because of your unspecific view of God. And this is why the, it's not some kind of archaic, um, quaint practice to get um, deeper into the Bible and into the stories of Scripture to understand who God is, whether it's kind of on your own personal sort of quiet time or daily rhythms, the, doing it in groups and community pods, doing it in worship, really all three of those are part of a fully-orbed pursuit of the Christian faith, that's not old-fashioned. That's actually getting the raw materials in place for an extremely catalytic, day-in and day-out, missional outlook on the world around you. Aggressively unselfish, because you know specifics about how God is aggressively unselfish. 
You need to get specific with God to avoid a sort of lukewarm, tepid outlook on the world around you. So that's point one. Who specifically is God? We also see what's going on here is God's actions are important. So what truly are God's actions? And does God act? You know, um, the, what we talk about is the gospel uh, at City Life Church is, is actually a unique perspective because it's rooted all in God's actions. What often happens, and maybe some of it's because of our fear of being specific with God, there's a, um, there's a religious approach which uh, you run and chase after God in order to gain God's approval or to be right with God. There's an, another person, a second view, that would say, no, I'm going to go the other way. I don't need anything having to do with God. I have my own way, and so I'm going to make my life out of these things over here that I think are important, that I've decided are right. Both of these groups actually have something in common, is that in the end, they both depend on their own actions. And in the dark um, day of self-doubt, and when things aren't going well, and when there's pain and struggle and difficulty, all you have to go on if you've taken one of those views are your own actions. And that can get, that can get pretty um, depressing, quite frankly. The, the gospel view is actually a third way. So, you know, a lot of people think that the, all that there is available from the church is this one way of running after God and, and trying, really it's a way of running away from God by trying to chase after him on your own strength. The gospel roots and centers in the middle of your life God's action. It's God's actions that matter. Um, And so the ancient people of Israel, they had this mantra that God kind of gave them because he said said it himself. He said, I am the God God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It's this, this is the God. He's defined by his actions. Uh, we, we do similar things. So in, in our worship service during the communion time, we have um, this point where I'll say, uh, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. You can join, join me. Christ has died. Christ has come again. <laughs> Christ, let's try it one more time. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Um, we have these mantras. But in our, the chapter we're reading right now in the, the story of Israel coming out of Egypt, God hasn't brought them out of Egypt yet. So that hasn't happened yet, and Moses is going to go back to them and tell them that it has happened. And the issue is their belief. Do they believe in God's, do they truly believe in God's power to do this? Do they believe in his actions? And so what Moses is given are these signs. And the signs are, um, I mean, you might look at them as sort of unimpressive and say, what is that going to do? Something about a snake, something about a skin disease, a cup of blood that came out of the river. I mean, what on earth is this supposed to say about God and the people out of Egypt? Well, signs are um, demonstrations. They're real, true demonstrations of God's bigger activity. Um, so they're demonstrative. They, they may be, they're a real thing, but they also point to a bigger, even more importantly, real thing. And so you can start to see with these signs that what's being shown is that God has this power that he's going to channel through Moses, or he's going to show through Moses, you might want to say. And it's the first two show them power over two very ominous threats to life. A, an incurable, venomous bite of a snake an incurable, deadly uh, skin disease. And God, with just kind of a flick of a stick, 
a, a grabbing of a hand, a little shift of the movement with the arm shows those are nothing. There's no problem with those. Power over death, over these things that were certain, that were incurable, that were deadly, God shows not a problem. And that power is going to go with your leader. It says a lot, but they might still be skeptical because, you know, they're not really worried about skin disease and snakes. They're, they're slaves under the mighty military power of Egypt. Well, all of uh, Egypt's power and wealth, you might say literally, flows from the Nile River. So suddenly you start to, if you start to enter in it, you say, what does it mean to this people oppressed by the great mighty power of Egypt that their leader can walk over to that source of wealth and take a little bit of it and it turns into rotting dead blood? Suddenly you catch a vision. Suddenly the sign is pointing to something. Wait a minute. Even their source of all wealth or power is kind of just as simple as a cup and a toss onto the ground. What it begins to do is it begins to carve out for them a sense, a picture of life and death are in God's hands. And that's what signs throughout the Bible do. They point to the incredible action and power of God. Most importantly, most, it exhibits this the most by just things that have to do with life and death. And so people like you and me, people like the people of Israel who might be immobilized by fear, might be brought down by oppression, discouragement, suddenly, because of this sense that God can act, can begin to say, you know what? I think I believe that God acts. I think that he has life and death in his hands. And that can become transformative in terms of taking a step into the mission of God. Think about, I don't know if you ever imagined how different your life could be if you just believe that simple thing that God acts powerfully, that life and death are in his hands. What is that, what is that, how does that shape your decisions today, tomorrow? You look at your money and you might have a guarded kind of mentality towards your finances, towards your wealth. And there's a sort of giving that might at best be called skimpy. Um, and if you're really honest, there's a sort of calculated generosity. What happens when you know that the God of all things acts in this world for your welfare and the welfare of the world around you? Suddenly you begin to see if, God's, if, the, if the God of the world's wealth actually acts today, tomorrow, then you can enter into the joyous response, the joyous release of money, the joyous entering into the funding of God's mission. That's how, it tra that's how transformative it can be. You want to trust the actions of God so much that you want to get rid of this stuff that tries to get your trust. You want to believe that money really is what's going to matter in life. You want to get rid of that at, at all costs. Let go. Joy, enter into the joyful release. What do you think about your workplace? How does it change? If you really believe God acts and he has life and death in his, in your, in his hands, how do you go into the workplace in a different way? I mean, a, the place where you come back uh, home, perhaps, from it, walking away from work, you're saying, this is a place, this is a forum where people... There are people who annoy me, 
and they're intent on getting in my way and not working together and, you know, stopping any progress we make. And you look around and you say, you know, the work itself is unfulfilling most of the time, maybe all the time. And the pay and the hours are undesirable and disappointing. But what happens when someone believes that that God acts in this world everywhere? When you you go into work and you might begin to see relationships even at work are a forum in which God has already been at work and will be at work to bring about things like undeserving people seeing gracious friendship, maybe healing actually beginning to take place, seeds of forgiveness happening in relationships. If you believe that God acts, you might look at, you might look at the tasks of your job. Imagine this, as tools of God's renewal in this world. The God, who, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who entered into covenant with them for the renewal of all things so that all people and all tribes and all nations might be blessed through what he does through Israel, through what he does through Jesus. That expansive whole worldview, you might go into whatever you're doing as monotonous as it might be and say, in this sphere, I'm bringing good news. I'm bringing excellence at the renewal of God's creation. I'm taking things that are, might be viewed as neutral and pointing them more towards what they look like in the new creation when God gets his hand on them. Because God acts. He is doing that. And so you take a step, and perhaps you say, I'm going to go into this sphere acting like the child of God that he has made me. That that might begin to be just felt differently in ways that are not even tangible. Um, and all of this is just to get God's actions more at the center of your life, which is actually a, a big paradigm shift, I think, for many of us. Uh, Eugene Peterson, he's a pastor and a writer, and he, he, he writes this about his experience. Um, as a young minister in his 30s, he had to suddenly make a, a huge shift that would be with him for the rest of his life. And he said it was a major exercise in unlearning. He writes about the extensive unlearning before me, the unlearning that was necessary to clear the ground for learning that God at work, not I, was the center of the way I was going to live for the rest of my life. Inappropriate, anxiety-driven, fear-driven work would only interfere with and distract from what God was already doing. So my work assignment was to pay more attention to what God does than what I do, and then to find the daily, weekly, yearly rhythms that would get this awareness into my bones. Have you stopped and, uh, and thought about how, how much you believe or disbelieve God's ability to act in our world today, and what kind of difference it might make if you made God's actions the center of your life, or if you, I mean, it sounds, to make God's actions the center of my life. Some of you are trying that and you say, that's like an impossibly high bar to, stand, to, high bar to set up for myself. Have you tried to put the, week, the daily, the weekly, the yearly rhythms perhaps in place so that it begins to move towards the center, God's actions? Because otherwise you're just swimming in an abyss 
of your own actions and they're going to drown you? Have you, pr- have you spent some time? Have you looked and longed and prayed for God's actions to move to the center? One person who did, and it won't always look like this, it'll probably rarely look like this, but one person who did writes about it. His name is Carlo Corretto in his book, In Search of the Beyond. And he says, uh, he talks about this intense reflection on, on uh, his Christian faith. He says, while I continue to have doubts about my own salvation, to tell him that my sins could not be forgiven and that justice, too, had its rights, he appeared on the cross before me uh, one Friday towards midday. I was at its foot and I found myself with the blood which flowed from the gaping holes made in his flesh by the nails. Uh, I found myself bathed with the blood. He remained there for three hours until he expired. I realized that he had died, listen to this, I realized that he had died in order that I might stop turning to him with questions about justice and believe instead. Deep within myself that the scales had come down overflowing on the side of love. And that even though all, through unbelief or madness, had offended him, he had conquered forever and drawn all things everlastingly to himself. Came to that conclusion by reflecting on the, really the chief sign that God has given us, the cross. And suddenly he began to see a line between God's action And this expansive view, how did he say it? That God is drawing all things everlastingly to himself. That is a great, simplified way to talk about the mission of God in this world. In order to be a part of it, you need a specific God. And you need to know and reflect on and spend time looking at his actions. And to know that he does act. And he will continue to act to draw all things and all people to himself. Will you pray with me? God, as we pursue knowing uh, your specific identity and knowing your actions, probably what we need most is your help in being jolted out of our own sort of micro plans, our mini missions um, that we set up instead of your bigger mission that you are at work in this world with every day, whether we enter into it or not. We need help getting jolted out and stepping in to your macro mission. Will you help us? By your Holy Spirit, will you um, work with us? Whether we need, um, you know, whether we're, we feel like we're almost there and understanding it, or we have many, many steps of progress and process to figure out who you are and what you might actually do. Would you walk with us through your Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.